Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, maybe you're of a vintage that you remember how community newspapers, large and small, used to thrive in Iowa. Over the past quarter century, hundreds of papers, not only in Iowa but across the country, have been forced to shutter their operations due to a number of transformative events. The, Of course, the digital revolution over the past decades, more recently the pandemic. And the absence of these papers leaves communities they served without a local voice to tell their stories or to hold those in power accountable. My guest this hour is award-winning Chicago-based journalist Dave Hoekstra. For the better part of three years, he's been working on a very interesting project. He's been interviewing newspaper publishers across America, and the result is his new book, Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. In the book, he recounts uh, the triumphs, uh, to be sure, but also, of course, the struggles of community newspapers that are just trying to stay afloat, to weather the buyouts, uh, declining revenue, of course, fake news, um, and the pandemic. For the book, he traveled to communities around America, uh, spoke at length with multi-generational family newspaper publishers, also reporters, readers, community figures, and this project took him to many places, Bakersfield, California, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee, Eldon, Missouri, Dixon, Illinois, and Carroll, Iowa. Uh, journalist uh, Dave Hoekstra, welcome to the program. What a fabulous book you have here. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I want to mention that you were a, a columnist and critic at the Chicago Sun-Times for three decades, something like that, right, Dave? Yeah, 85 to, uh, yeah, 2014. Very good. I, I want to quote the introduction of your book and then have you tell us a little bit more about what you set out to do here. Uh, this is from your introduction. This is not just another book about journalism. It is not another account of the miseries of the newspaper industry. It is a book about a vanishing terrain of community ties and dedication to the common good. It is a celebration of the potential of the newspaper model when it embraces and understands neighbors and possibilities. Dave, tell us more about why you wrote this book, what you set out to do in it. Well, um, I'd done, I think one book I did while I was still at the Sun-Times, I started, I've done several books, and um, the template, and we did well with this, was a book on Midwest supper clubs. We even went into eastern Iowa. We went, we went over to the Cedar Rapids area, but we did Wisconsin. And, and I'm not a food guy, but what I tried to do there was look at the um, independent operations and the multi-generational, especially the challenge of like three three or four generations keeping a, a supper club alive. And I really, the book I think clicked with people because um, it spoke to um, sense of community mm -hmm. and sense of place. And I did that in a couple other books and we did one on soul food and the civil rights movement. And so then, you know, Three or four years ago, I got the idea. Well, what 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 would you do if you applied that that idea into small town newspapers? This was not going to be a um, 
a manifesto. I'm not that smart to write a book, you know, like an academic book about the future of journalism and stuff, but I just wanted to visit these places almost like with a, a Friday Night Lights spin and just see, you know, especially in small to mid-sized towns. I mean, we have a couple. We have the Chicago Reader in there, but um, just how the the newspaper coexists with the community and how how important the newspaper is to the community. You know, um, one of my thesis statements was to understand a community newspaper, you know, you need to understand community. Mm-hmm. And it's fierce. It's, you know, it's it's strong. There's a lot of pride and, 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 and small to mid-sized places I surveyed. You know, these people are are champions for the community, not to say they neglect investigative reporting and things have gone wrong and stuff, but there's just a you know, I came from a world at the Sun Times where I saw <laughs> I saw a lot there, but we had a lot of different ownerships and stuff. And you know, we had we had we had shareholders and the profit margins and stuff. And one of my papers in Hillsborough, we just did an event there a few weeks ago. They had a huge turnout. They're so proud. Um, but the publisher there just said, you know, if we make a dollar at the end of the year, we've had a great year. You know, mm. I never would have heard anything like that at the Chicago Sun Times. <laughs> so um, I really wanted to play into just. The feeling and the sense of community. I tried, you know, I didn't go to some of the stuff I had to do by phone, but I tried to visit as many places as I could on, on that really big travel budget. But I just wanted to see how the how the newspapers live with the people in the community. Mm-hmm. So remind us, because it's been it's been as you point out in the book, you know, uh, almost thirty years that we've been seeing the decline of newspapers. Just tumult in in the newspaper industry. Um, You mentioned in your book that since 2004, more than 1,800 local print outlets uh, closed in the U.S. Uh, At least 200 counties have no newspapers at all. Uh, Mergers have been happening. Uh, Walk us quickly through, as a reminder perhaps, the decline of community newspapers over the the past uh, 25 years and the forces that have been at work. Well, um, you know, again, in the book, there's um, there's there's the Daily Herald, the Paddock Publications out of Harlington Heights. They what they've done is they go into like Southern Illinois and they they buy uh, several dying newspapers and cluster them up, and they do that for um, the power of advertising. And then they can sell the advertising all under one umbrella and stuff. Um, you know, other other places have pivoted. You know, they're in the course of three and a half years of doing the book, people went from print, they went from online only, then they went to nonprofit model. We have a we have a do have a chapter on the nonprofit model, which mm-hmm. you know, fifty fifty of people people think about that in, in the in the book. But um, you know, it's it's you know, you have to have a. Um, I live in a town right right outside of Chicago, Westchester, like twenty minutes outside of Chicago. We're sixteen thousand people, but you have to have. There's one little newspaper that covers the. Covers the village board and covers the police, and you just have to have that accountability, you yeah. know. And and these these Eureka Springs is a small town, but they they really you know they cover hard news really you know really in a good way. So yeah, and uh, you, you you got your start in the newspaper business in 1972. You say a high school stringer for the Aurora Beacon News, that's yeah, right. west of Chicago in the Naperville uh, area, and and. Remember, uh, re- t- tell us about your excitement. Uh, was that just something you knew you wanted to dedicate your life to for, from the get-go in high school? Yeah, that was yeah, you know, and that was a Copley newspaper. And it's funny that uh, I didn't come up with the title of the book, but it was the Aurora Beacon News, and they named the book Beacons of the Darkness. So yeah, that was a Copley paper, you know, and it was a, the Copleys. They were from you know the San Diego area, so you know, I remember it was the only time in my career I think we had I you know I was a kid, but we had a dress code, you know, <laughs> I had to wear a tie, <laughs> but um, 
what was good about that was it was like working at a small town radio station. You know, I mean, I was able to do a lot of different. I was just, I was I was still in high school. I started stringing for them, and then yeah. they hired me right after I got out of high school. And you know, so you got to, you got to do everything. You got to. Um, yeah, I covered police. I covered sports. I did all kinds of stuff, and then I just bounced around through Chicago journalism, suburban journalism, until I until I got to the Sun Times and stuff. So yeah, I saw a lot. You know, I, I talk in the book about how um, the accessibility is really important. You see that in these small towns. There's not a curtain like maybe you have in, in bigger markets and stuff. And I remember the first time I visited Hillsboro in Southern Illinois. It took me back to. Uh, the Beacon had a bureau in Naperville, and that's that's where I went to high school. And there was a little bureau, a storefront bureau, and people would come in and drop off their. It all sounds quaint now, but they would drop off their their death notices. They would drop off the marriage notices. They drop off news and stuff. And there was a real connection uh, between uh, the community and, and the readers, and um, and the newspaper. And I saw that the first time I came into Hillsboro. It took me back to that bureau in Naperville. It really reminded me of that. And yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a sweet feeling. Yeah, and also in the mid-70s, you had to be riding high as a young man going into journalism because you had, uh, I mean, you had Bob Woodward and, and Carl Bernstein. Right. Uh, you, 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 journalists were suddenly superstars, weren't they? You're exactly right. That was I came in on that wave. I came right. You know, it was it was it was a sexy thing to get into newspaper. Exactly <laughs> for the reason you know for the reasons you mentioned. There was you know the, the movie, all the presidents meant everybody wanted to saviors be saviors of democracy. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, you know, I kind of I went down the you know I did hard news and you know, I, I did city council all that type of stuff in the suburban journalism. But when I, by the time I got downtown, I was pretty much a, a feature writer. And I, same thing in Chicago. Sometimes I did all kinds of stuff. But yeah, it was it was a very big deal. Okay. You know, I, and I, I've been talking to people about the book. There's like yeah, we did have a chapter in the book, and, and I know Doug Burns. I, I talked to Doug at length about this. About I had a whole chapter in the book about um, printing and then the print shops and just how attached these small town newspapers and then they were in Chicago too to the, to the printing process and stuff and when you get rid of the the printing press um it's like you know losing a, a an arm or a leg or something yeah. you know so i i saw all that yeah yeah doug burns waiting in the wings i want to ask make sure we focus on the the theme of your book the themes here uh, in the book you write about the questions you you were looking to answer go over those questions that you you set out to answer in these uh, series of in-depth interviews uh, in, uh, across the country well, riffing off the top of my head, I don't have much in front of me. But I mean, you know, I mean, why are you in the fight? What are the challenges of staying alive? Um, I think the people have been gravit. The book's been doing well, and um, I, people gravitate toward the future. Um, so there's a whole uh, there's a section in the book where we talk about the future and thinking outside of the box, and that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody there's not one clear answer. But um, there's a gentleman, Walter Hussman, and it's a bigger, it's Arkansas, Arkansas Democrat Gazette. But what he did is he took a part of Arkansas, Blytheville, Arkansas. I've driven through there on the way to Memphis. Um, I don't know. He took maybe, it's in the book, I'm guessing, two, 3,000 readers took away the newspaper and gave them all iPads and trained them to read the paper on iPads. That's an amazing older. story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and these, and these are older people, and they were excited. Uh, we talk in the book, There's one. there was one gentleman who was like maybe 80, 85 years old. He was all excited to read his... Uh, Read his newspaper on the iPad, and he, he got back to his house. And they, you know, they they rented a they rented a um, room at a Holiday Inn there in Blytheville, so they had they had tech help there for like for a weekend. So he got everything all loaded up and stuff. He couldn't he couldn't get it to work, and he called he called the tech people. And he didn't have a he didn't have a Wi-Fi signal in his house. <laughs> he was that, but I think and I think they still give them a, a physical edition of the Sunday papers. There's stuff like that. Uh, the Marfa, Texas. Now I did not 
Marfa was all phone work. I did not go down to Marfa. Marfa's a, an outlier because Marfa's kind of an artsy town. Um, but they had a young couple who came in to, from Brooklyn, and they bought the paper from a family there. And it's the whole thing is it's morphed into like a community center. So you go you go to the newspaper. It's like I was talking about Hillsborough. You go to the newspaper office, and then you get a cup of coffee. There's a coffee shop, and there's a little bar area, and there's a gift shop. The guys, they told me that the people come in to pay their pay their uh, bill for the newspaper, and then they sit down and have a cup of coffee with the editor of the paper. Mm. I think I think stuff like that, you know, I just, and I used to, at the end of my career at the Sun-Times, I would fight for stuff like that. You know, you in, in, a, in a business that's struggling and dying, to your point, you know, you really have to look at new models and new things. You can't stay in one place. Although, if you, if you stay, in, stay in one place, you are going to die. So I think the experiments that people are trying, uh, that gives me hope, and that does give me hope. Uh, good feelings toward the future. We want to talk about those experiments a little bit later in the program. Remind the listeners who may have just joined us, Dave Hoekstra is with us, Beacons in the Darkness, his book, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. Perhaps, Dave, as way of introduction, Doug Burns is with me in the studio, but as a way of introduction, um, Dave Burns, uh, Dave, uh, Doug features prominently in this book, uh, why Why did you choose to highlight the Carol Times Herald? Uh, and then we'll talk to Doug. I love Doug. Um, and um, <laughs> we'll talk about Doug when I hear Doug. But, you know, I mean, I did research. Um, I knew about the paper that did the, the, with the, um, got the Pulitzer. They were right down the road, and they have their own book and stuff. Um, I'd done research, and I just read about it. Somehow I just stumbled into, into Doug's world and Doug's Doug's life and I yeah I drove over there and we we spent some time there and I I was just knocked out by the um, the passion that whole family has for their paper and the job they do and the work and the good work they do you know these small town paper you know they they hire really great reporters and, and a really great staff and what Doug has done there and Carol is really solid and you know Doug Doug as you probably know Doug works so hard and, yeah. and the commitment the commitment is just is just tremendous. Doug Burns has been on our airwaves many times with various stories that we get out of uh, that part of the state, central western part of the state. Doug Burns, uh, Carol Times Herald co-owner, uh, welcome to our program. Thanks, and hello, Dave. Hi, Doug. How are you? Great. Uh, I want to read Dave's comment, uh, Doug's comment on your uh, on your book. The DD thing is mixing me up here a little bit. Forgive me. Uh, this is what Doug you had to write uh, about this book. Dave's book is a love letter to America at its best, to towns large and small. A cautionary tale, also about the proliferation of news deserts, in which Americans don't know what they don't know about local government, and the happening is around the block from them, not to mention in our courthouses and state houses, where the fourth estate is increasingly absent in a culture that values the whiz-bang silliness of Instagram influencers more than the grit of determined beat reporters on democracy's guard duty. A sample of, of Doug's writing. I've always enjoyed your writing and having you on the program. Doug, give us a quick history of your family paper, how it started, and how it was passed through generations. So again, thanks for having us having us both on, Ben. Uh, I would be a fourth-generation journalist. My great-grandfather operated the newspaper in Albia. My grandfather, who served during World War I, worked in coal mines in, in southern Iowa and Colorado to earn money to put himself through the University of Missouri Journalism School, started at the Register, and came to Carroll in 1929 and took over 
the Carroll Herald, which was then the more Republican-leaning weekly. He was a staunch Republican who was actually Barry Goldwater's Iowa campaign chairman. Uh, And then he he merged the—he ended up buying the Carroll Times, the other weekly, merged them into a daily, and we operated as a daily through three generations until five years ago when we, you know, because of market forces and just the realities of the business today— we, uh, you know, became a newspaper that's published in print twice a week, although I would, would argue that in many ways we're more responsive because we're 24-7 online. So we, we post on the weekends. We post at night. Uh, we have a, a great young editor in Trevor Babcock, who is an Iowa State alum who worked for the Marshalltown Times Republican before coming to us. And he's, he and I have really worked aggressively to make sure that we get stories out, out first. So... That's the history. Uh, we've, we've, you know, we're four generations deep, and I'm privileged to work with my brother who does marketing and my, my mother who's the publisher and the <laughs> general manager. Wonderful. And you write, uh, Dave takes your quote uh, to put in the book, for better or worse, we always felt like this newspaper was almost like a public utility. Uh, community, uh, Dave tapped into that, a sense of community and a sense of place as his goal for this book here. Talk about some of the ways, and that impressed me in the book, the way the uh, Carroll Times Herald shaped the community. This is past getting the news out in a newspaper. So my old boss at the Ames Tribune, Michael Gartner, always said that a newspaper should strive not to be the blind booster or the common scold. And and we've tried to live up to that. Uh, Governor Branstad uh, repeatedly would tell me when we'd be at different functions in rural Iowa when he'd be on economic development tours that you can always tell the difference between a a great community and and a really terrific community in Iowa by the presence of a locally owned bank and a locally owned newspaper. If you had a strong locally owned bank, strong locally owned newspaper, the community is probably going to be stronger than your average Iowa community. Through the years, we've been involved in economic development at, at a variety of levels. We've helped get our current library modernized. My grandfather was involved in some early urban renewal in which we had really one of the first rural malls in the United States, in in Carroll, Iowa. And we've tried to advocate for progress whenever we can and, you know, just just be there to support the local organizations in in any way we can. And being at Rotary meetings, being at the Lions Club uh, pancake dinners, uh, just doing all those sorts of, uh, you know, community lifting endeavors. Mm-hmm. What do you? I have, a, I have a quick. I have a quick question. Yeah, um, go, on, Dave. In, in, um, in these, some of the, you know, I came from a world at the sometimes where if we got a box of chocolates, you know, uh, at Christmas time, we'd have to send them back. And then some <laughs> of this, some of the stuff, I, I you know, I, it's great. I, I saw a lot of people. Um, I'm going to get to the question here in a minute. But I saw a lot of people championing the community. There was one guy who was wearing an editor who was wearing a, a baseball cap of a business he was trying to bring into town and stuff. So when you get that involved in the community, my question would be, and then you have to do hard news, where, how do ethics come into play? Hmm. Doug? Well, I, I remember coming up in that in the same way you did, Dave, that when you went to a, uh, let's say, a Chamber of Commerce luncheon, you, you weren't supposed to eat. Well, I mean, yeah. Ben sitting across me right now, he can tell that like I, I don't turn down meals. <laughs> I, I've always told our reporters, you know, when you go when you go to events in the evening or whatever, don't drink at events, you know, while you're covering it, because even if you just had one Miller Lite, if you end up getting somebody's name wrong in a, in a caption or something, people are going to point to the fact that they saw you drinking. So yeah, don't right. do that. But if you're at like a you know a, a chili feed that's 
raising money for your local high school team. I, I, I always think you just almost offend people if you turn down, you know, a brownie or you turn down, you know, a cup of soup or something like that. And anybody that could be swayed by some chicken noodle soup or a, or, or a bratwurst <laughs> doesn't belong in our business anyway. But, but, to the, but, but to Dave's point there, how do you, you – you're really enmeshed as a community newspaper. How do you get that enmeshed and win the trust of so many people but then are able to also, when necessary, report critically uh, about things that may not show people or organizations in the community in, their, in the best light? So you, you have to be willing to tell the hard truths and they need to be told. If, you know, there's a prominent business person who is, uh, you know, arrested for an OWI or worse, that has to go in the paper and that's not negotiable. And you have to be willing to die on that hill. And people have to know that, that, that you are not going to sacrifice, uh, you know, news and important facts for profit. And, and you build that trust over time. And then simultaneously, while you're telling those hard truths, you build the credibility to tell those hard truths by being there to celebrate, you know, a lot of success in communities too. So throughout my career, I've, I've really enjoyed writing stories about new businesses. We've done a, a, a terrific amount of stories on people from Carroll, notably Nick Nurse, who's now coach of the Toronto Raptors, um, Kenny Mackey, who's now deceased, who was the CEO of Target. I've always loved to tell the stories about success in our communities. When people know that you're rooting for the community whole cloth, then I think they're willing to absorb and digest the difficult stories when you have to tell them. And, and that doesn't mean that you're not going to lose advertising over it. It doesn't mean that you're not going to lose friends over it. You, you have to be willing to lose both. And if you, if you aren't willing to lose both, then you don't have any business standing near a printing press. Mm-hmm. We have about a minute or, or so before the break. Dave Hoekstra, did did that get to the point you wanted to to, to um, probe uh, Doug Well, maybe about? we'll get on this later, and Doug probably knows more about the nonprofit world than I do, but we, we dip into that. There's a chapter on the nonprofit stuff as a, as a way to the future. But, and uh, again, I think about, I, I know with the reader here in Chicago, they have... One thing I learned is you, when, if you do a nonprofit board, it has to be a, a smaller board. I think they had 24 people on their board. So, again, if you have a nonprofit board, how, how involved – people aren't going to sit on a board and keep quiet. So where does their influence come in? You know, where do, where, how do they want their stories to be played or their concerns to be played? And I really don't know the answer to how you navigate a nonprofit board at a newspaper. But it's another, another place where ethics could be a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. Well, so, well, certainly a, uh, the, the traditional model that reigned for 300 years of being able to fund a newspaper, to fund the fourth estate with advertising revenue and subscriptions, that gave families like mine the leverage and the ability to tell those hard truths. I would say there are certainly concerns with the, the nonprofit world and those voices, uh, but having a newspaper with limited abilities is better than having no newspaper. Okay, we'll be, we'll be back in just a moment after a short break. Uh, we'll be back with Doug Burns, uh, Carol Times Herald co-owner, two veteran journalists with us uh, this hour. Dave Hoekstra, he is uh, the author of his latest book, uh, The Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers, drawn from a few years of interviewing people, trying to keep the lights on in community newspapers across the country. I'm Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band, and the entire symphony, June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. These days, there's an app for everything. Now there's an app for everything you love about Iowa Public Radio. 
local newscasts and stories from the voices you trust, your favorite public radio shows and podcasts, plus the music to soundtrack your day. You can have it all in the IPR app. Find it in app stores or at IPR.org app. Sure glad you're on board for this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today talking with Chicago-based journalist, uh, award-winning uh, journalist, as a matter of fact, Dave Hoekstra. Uh, his latest book, Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. Um, he set out on this project that's lasted a few years, uh, interviewing people, um, sometimes actually traveling to these uh, places, sometimes by phone. Uh, people trying to keep the lights on at community newspapers across the country from California to Arkansas, uh, also here in the Midwest, uh, uh, Dixon, Illinois, Eldon, Missouri, and Carroll, Iowa. Uh, We also have with us a a, a, a publisher who features uh, prominently in this book, Doug Burns. You've heard him many times here on River to River. Carroll Times Herald co-owner, also a veteran uh, journalist. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, Dave, this half hour, we want to get to some, you know, we mentioned the nonprofit model, which you have a chapter of in this book, uh, sort of some, you you do call it beacons in the darkness, so we want to make sure those beacons have some glow quality to them (laughs) as we end this show, because we know now that community newspapers have been so important uh, to communities large and small across the country. But talk a little bit, and then I'll ask Doug, how, you know, with the forces that you described in the first half hour, how newspapers have struggled to stay alive, how they've coped, uh, what mechanisms they've turned to over the years? I think, um, and, and Doug... Doug actually made the effort to uh, come all the way to one of our book events in Chicago. I was very, very impressed. Drove all the way over, and I think Doug spent a lot of time talking to uh, Seamus Toomey, who was an old colleague of mine at the Sun-Times, and he went on to become editor of a thing called Block Club. It's an online newspaper here. It was started as DNA Info by uh, Joe Ricketts, uh, father of Tom Ricketts and the Cubs and all that, and he he dumped it, and then they took it over as Block Club. It's a nonprofit. But my point with that is is that um, they're, they're really into hyper-local. Uh, and it goes back almost to the thesis of the book. It's very Block Club's done very well because they have reporters that work. You know, Chicago's such a city of rich neighborhoods, and they have reporters that are identified with each neighborhood. Some of them, some of them, not all of them. Some of them live in the neighborhoods. They have, they have, again, it goes back to the thing I was saying about transparency. People know them, um, and it's just people... It's hyper-local, and I think that's just, it goes back to people wanting to know, um, you know, in small towns, it's almost like a cliche, but the obituaries, that, that's that's such a big thing in the small town papers I visited. You know, things like weird things, like the bowling scores, or the, <laughs> the menu at the cafe, you know, the school cafeteria. People love that stuff, and um, so I think they're continuing, in bigger markets, I think you're starting to see a little bit of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug, let me ask you, now that so much of our news media environment, uh, the connective tissue of our communities uh, has been taken over by social media, in what ways are uh, those different, uh, our new digital social media and uh, community newspapers uh, struggling to stay alive? Well, I suppose the main difference is Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, which I think has done more to destroy democracy in our country than the election of any single political figure. And I'd let your listeners determine which political figure would would fit that gap. 
Section 230 defines newspapers as we're, we're, we're a publisher. We are responsible for the content. If we publish something in the Carroll Times-Herald, we have to stand behind that, and we, and we do stand behind it. If we make a mistake, we correct it, and we carefully vet any information because we have people's reputations in our hands, and we take that very seriously, and we have the atmospherics of the community in our hands in terms of how we present content. Facebook, Twitter, other social media platforms, they are just that. They are platforms, so they don't have to stand behind that content. They're not liable in the same way we are. And one of the challenges we've had is that you, you have readers who came of age seeing the printed word, and they assume when they see something from a, a, a news organization that it will have been vetted by multiple editors. When I worked at the Palm Beach Post, any story I wrote, and Dave, Dave can remember this from his days at the Sun-Times, my stories would go through six or seven editors. There, was, it, there couldn't be a trace of bias. There wouldn't be a, a, a hmm. name spelled wrong. But now uh, you have older people that are consuming content, and they were acculturated to consume content in an era where responsible journalism prevailed, and now they have profit-minded and uh, political provocateurs that are out there presenting content, and they're digesting it as, as if it's real. And I, th- I think that's one of the, the major reasons we have uh, disinformation proliferating, and we're really on, you know, whether we're still in a democracy or not is debatable. Mm. Dave, are you on board with all of those comments from Doug? Well, let me say something about um, one of my favorite one of my favorite parts of the book is in Hillsborough, and there's a gentleman in Hillsborough who led the team in Silicon Valley that invented the iPhone. It's a true story, and he took you know he retired at age forty, goes back to the community, comes back to Hillsborough. He met his wife at the University of Illinois in Champaign, so they come back to central central and southern Illinois, and they restored this. Um, they restored this uh, old hotel, and they're turning it into a brew pub. And, uh, I mean, Hillsborough's like 6,000 people. And so he, he, everybody in Hillsborough knows him as the guy who invented the iPhone. He, he doesn't like talking about it. I got some stuff out of him. His two kids liked uh, working at the newspaper. They, they helped with the computers. They loved, they loved seeing themselves in the newspaper, not on a, not on a phone. But where I'm going with that, um, in my the, my mother's side of the family is from Southern Illinois. Same thing, they were coal miners. They came over to work in the Peabody coal mines in, in Southern Illinois. So I, I know the, the terrain down there a little bit. So George Floyd happens, okay? And that's citizen journalism. The, the young woman, the teenage woman who shot that George Floyd incident on her phone, she gets a Pulitzer Prize, okay? And then, um, I, it's in my book, these, these kids down in southern Illinois, who it's not a, certainly not an urban area, small towns, they see all this stuff on their iPhone, and they start doing um, Black Lives, and they're all white kids, they're all doing Black Lives Matters protests, and they're doing marches and stuff, and that's all because of uh, the stuff that people caught on their iPhones. So that's just... I don't know what the end game of that is, but that's just a fascinating chapter we're, we're in right now, how that whole thing kind of resonated with people in areas that aren't really tied into a lot of, a lot of media connections. Right. The killing of George Floyd resonated, of course, yeah. across the country, yeah. across the world. Doug Burns, how did you experience that um, at the Carroll Times-Herald, that era, that time, that shock? Uh, it was extraordinarily painful. I, so I'm adopted, and I, uh, my, my sister's from, from Vietnam. I work closely with La Prenza Spanish language newspaper and have, have many friends there. So it, it, we've always been a, a newspaper that tries to support diversity. 
we um, it, it was just extraordinarily painful to uh, t- to see that and um, you know and then also you know subsequent uh, to that to uh, just figure out how to uh, how to how to localize that in a in a way that was meaningful and, and not performative and and hopefully we we achieved that mm-hmm. uh, Ben to tie that into a little bit broader Doug and I want to ask Dave the same thing here you know. We've we've ramped up. You know, we we said ten years ago <laughs> that we were in a hyperpartisan environment, and we didn't know that we could go even further, which we have uh, these days. But uh, the, the larger environment, uh, George Floyd being part of it, um, um, the elections we've had here, election denial. How has that affected your community? Is it forced people more into um, sort of antagonistic roles, uh, taking sides, Doug? Uh, do you find it harder? Uh, to be that truth teller of the hard stories in your community? Yeah, people have retreated into their silos, and you've had the nationalization of politics at a, at a local level. It used to be at, in city council races, for example, people would stand on their own, and you really, you know, they might be informed. If they were a Republican, they you might see that emerge in terms of how they would, uh, you know, vote on a city budget or something like that. Uh, but generally speaking, I've, I've covered dozens of Carroll, members of the Carroll City Council. I think I have pr- pretty good political antenna. I've been on your program a lot talking about politics. Sure have. But I'd have to tell you, probably 70 or 80 percent of our council people over the last 25 years, I couldn't say for sure what their partisan affiliation is. Now, at the local level, people lead with it, and you see – uh, it's it's going to be difficult for you know school boards to continue to populate their bodies with uh, their organizations with with good people because those of us who are in the arena that take a lot of slings and arrows I mean we're accustomed to it we sign up for it it's the price of admission but what I worry about is this, this environment is driving a lot of potential good public servants or just people who want to get involved and go to a city council meeting and talk about a sidewalk issue we have a sidewalk issue in Carroll. Talked to a member of our local council yesterday, and she's getting emails on it. And a lot of those people are terrified to come present just a sort of a view on basic infrastructure hmm. because they're worried about how uh, they'll be attacked or uh, portrayed on social media. Wow. That over a sidewalk issue, that's distressing, Dave, distressing stories like that throughout your, throughout your book. Talk, talk about the, the oversize, uh, if that's what it is, larger than before, role of politics in, in our lives and in our newspapers, well, kind of, kind of for those reasons, I didn't really jump into politics that much, especially the time I was doing the. I mean, 2019 to 2022, you know, I, we we do touch into the COVID stuff, but um, the political stuff, I really, you know, I didn't get that deep into it. Um, John Gaylor, the owner of the paper in Hillsborough, you know, when we had our event down there, he told we had a huge crowd for that, and he was saying, you know, he can go to he can go to a Republican event. And he can go to a Democrat event. He's accepted at both both places in in, in, the, in the town and stuff. So um, they're nimble. They um, but it's social media. You know, I mean, people are afraid what they see and how, how they speak on social media. So I think that leads to Doug's point about retreat. You know? Yeah. Uh, another point I wanted to have Doug recount this story, which you have in the book from him, uh, Dave, uh, between July of 2017 and May of 2018. The Carroll Times-Herald published a series of stories about a local police officer's inappropriate relationships with uh, young, uh, with teenage girls. And uh, you, you, you had a reporter on this, I think Jacob Strong. Jared Strong. Jared Strong. Who, who now works for, who does terrific work now for Iowa Capital Dispatch. 
but but he, here you were doing the same mission that you had before, but there was a much different outcome. Uh, we don't have much time, but tell us about this, because the point that I took away is here, you're doing the same thing, you're truth-telling. This is a hard story to tell by a local newspaper, and you got in, yeah, you, you got into it waist-deep and even higher. Well, broadly speaking, I would say that journalists in many ways are going through what a lot of teachers in our state are right now. Historically had a, uh, a, a teacher disciplined a kid, disciplined a student, when, when that student went home and explained what happened to the parents or the, the school system explained what happened to the parents, the parents would generally back the, the teacher and, and have a conversation with, the, with their, their, their child about, uh, the, about their behavior. In, in our business, historically, we've been able to tell hard truths and be able to print information about uh, misdeeds, crimes, behavior in the community, and be broadly supported by the community. And, and to be fair, I think, you know, in large extent, uh, we, we still are. Uh, but there, there is, a, in this environment, uh, this highly polarized environment, and in an era where we've had to absorb the blows of the fake news, enemy of the people trope, people see leaders at the highest level just denying facts that all of us can see in clear sight, whether it's, a, whether it's the outcome of an election, uh, whether it's, it's certain behavior. So when, when you have uh, leaders modeling a rejection of facts, it, it makes it more difficult for us at, at the local level because, I mean, people parrot that kind of behavior back and, and we take hits for running stories that uh, in, in, the, in the past we would have been uh, applauded for, for you know, having the courage to publish. And you did have the courage to publish this, and it was 100% factually correct, but resulted in a lawsuit that did tremendous damage to, I mean, your paper, your, the mental health of your whole uh, family business, right? Being sued for libel is not something that any journalist should want on their bucket list, Ben. Yeah. And how did it affect you and your family? Well, we, we were confident that our reporting was accurate, and uh, we did win an Iowa Freedom of Information Award, and I remember you know, giving the acceptance speech for that and saying, if you're going to be sued for libel, you want Jared Strong as a reporter standing behind you. So uh, I've known and admired Jared's work for years. He's, he's one of my closest friends. So I, I believed his information was accurate. I knew his, his, his reporting has just been like rock solid across the board. But, you know, I'm also old enough that I remember watching O.J. Simpson walk out of a courtroom as a free man. So once you once your name is listed as a defendant and you get into the court system, you never really know the outcome. Fortunately, the the suit was dismissed and we were able to to survive and a lot of lot of legal costs and and continue publishing. Yeah. Um, We don't have much time left. And I wanted to end up by talking about the nonprofit model and solutions as far as we can tell at this point. Um, But but. Dave, quickly, why did you include that story, that experience uh, of, of Doug and, and that story in your book? Um, it, again, it shows the commitment. It shows the passion. I, I found Doug that I probably interviewed 30, 30 people for the book, at least 30, 35 people in the business. Um, I found Doug's passion and commitment extraordinary. Doug was very very honest with me. Um, I think we built up a, a, a good sense of trust. He, he told me stories that that were very, very personal. Um, but I just wanted to, it's, it's just a tremendous way of illustrating the, the commitment that that newspaper has to their, their community. And, you know, they went to the floor for that story. Yeah. 
In the final five minutes of our conversation with Dave Hoekstra and Doug Burns, let's talk about what we know now as far as models that work, solutions. You have a chapter on nonprofits here. Um, You start the chapter on the future, Dave, by asking, how do community newspapers secure their future? How did you, what answers did you get to that question? Like, again, I just like experimentation. Um, I like, you know, being different, trying new things. Um, I, I don't know, Doug, I don't know how Doug feels about the nonprofit. My, it, I, it was a very small sample size. Uh, Mike Jenner, who's the chair of the uh, journalism school at the University of Missouri, he was also the editor of the paper in Bakersfield, where we get into that story. He doesn't think it's going to work. He, I mean, there's an there's a easy answer. It says you still have to make money, even in a nonprofit thing. Tell us briefly, just, for those who don't know, how does the nonprofit model work differently than the older model, traditional model? Doug, you want to explain that, Doug? Yeah, go ahead, Doug. So the historical model has been that newspapers derive their revenue and are able to preserve our role as a fourth estate watchdog through subscriptions and advertising revenue. Uh, Since the days of Benjamin Franklin, that's worked. It doesn't work so much, uh, you know, over the last five years that that model's uh, detonated. So, for example, you, you brought up a great example, Dave, with Chicago Block Club, and Seamus Toomey's doing inc- incredible work with that nonprofit. Uh, the Salt Lake City Tribune is now a nonprofit paper. I just spoke quite a while yesterday with Jim Friedlich, who operates Lenfest, which is a, a huge charitable organization that oversees the, the venerable Philadelphia Inquirer, and that model is really working. Here in Iowa, uh, I partnered with uh, my good friend Art Cullen, who you're aware of, Dave, and everybody in the state should be. They should be reading yeah, him. He's been on many times. Yeah, yeah, he has been. And and uh, Lorena Lopez, who is the most significant Latino journalist in the state. So we built the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation. We actually used a Facebook grant to, to do it. I felt a little bit like the Vici French when I took that Facebook money, but but it allowed us to build the uh, the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation. And that paper is or that foundation is set up to help. Uh, community papers from Interstate 35 all the way to the Nebraska and South Dakota borders and then north-south from Minnesota to Missouri. It's already been a big lift for La Prenza and a a really big lift for the Storm Lake Times. Yeah. Dave, to finish up this conversation, where would you say we are in, in having newspapers survive into the future, still feeling our way forward as a newspaper industry for the smaller ones? Or, or is there a, there are some solutions we know do work. We have to add to them. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a smorgasbord. I think it's a, push, putting a lot of ideas together. You know, I'm I'm 67 years old. I still like a print. You know, I'm looking around my house right now. I mean, there's a bunch of you know old Sunday New York Times, and my place is full of newspapers and stuff. I was on a flight uh, last month. I was probably the only person on the on the plane reading an actual physical newspaper. So is that printed? printed model, the way of the future, you know. I don't know. Sometimes I, I know McSweeney's even did a thing a couple years ago. Like I got at my office. They did like a really, really sexy, great version of a Sunday paper with great Chris Ware art and just all kinds of, you know, magazines. It's almost like the you know, Sunday New York Times and stuff. So I think people are, have, have an appetite for that. But I, I think it's just a, a mishmash of experimentation. I think local, local is really, people want to know what's going on in their neighborhood. Local is a way to yeah. go. I really think we've touched on this a couple of times during this conversation. I really think transparency and getting involved in the community in all kinds of ways. Um, I think that's important. Well, for, for listeners not involved behind a newspaper, what can individuals who care about community presence of newspapers do, um, Doug Burns, to finish up here, to, to, to keep this 
this uh, community involvement and the news flowing. Understand that most journalists love their communities. I, lo- I love Carroll, Iowa. I love telling stories in Carroll, Iowa. And at the end of the day, what keeps me going is that I, I love I love my family and I love the community. And at our paper, they're they're intertwined. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. There are new models emerging. We had a delivery issue this week, and so it was kind of difficult managing the the calls when people didn't were getting their papers a day or two late. That doesn't happen often, but it does. We had three hundred phone calls. We have three thousand subscribers. Ten percent of our subscribers called and said, "Where's our paper? Where's our paper?" Mm. Most of them were really polite. Uh, the, actually, the women were more polite than the men, to be honest. But but uh, uh, they want the paper paper. And there's something about having an obituary in a paper paper, a high school right. story being told in a paper paper, high school sports story being told in a paper that still matters to people. So when you're dealing with this fever swamp of toxicity in social media, I think when that paper arrives on somebody's door, it still has meaning and a paper paper is still going to be a big, big, big part of the solution to Iowa journalism. Dave Hoekstra, the final 30 seconds to you, please. Well, yeah, uh, tailgating on what he just said, I mean, you know, the, the, down in Hillsborough, they told me if somebody walks in with a picture of the biggest mushroom in their backyard, they're going to run that picture at the newspaper because that's important to them. And you can't overlook that. You know, what's important to the reader? I end the book, I, I don't have any sweeping smart conclusions, but I said there is, I end the book by saying there is a responsibility for the reader. Like Doug said, whether it's sports or subscriptions, buy it on the newsstand, you know, contact it. It goes two ways. So um, the reader has a great responsibility to keep these things alive. Okay. Award-winning journalist Dave Hoekstra, thank you for joining us this hour. Thank you. His latest book, Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. Doug Burns, nice to see you in the studio. Usually we don't see each other. Nice to see you. I'm happy I made the drive, Ben. Doug Burns, uh, co-owner of the Carroll Times Herald, also a veteran journalist. Thank you both. Iowa Public Radio is your local NPR network station. Community-based and listener-supported We connect you to the news, music, information, and ideas that shape your world every day. Today's program produced by Sam McIntosh, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care, Doug and Dave, and you all as well.